make content that you yourself are just in love with, that you really are proud of and you want to share, that means something to you. You have to share it because you're proud of that content. You're not sharing that with the expectation of everyone else loving it. Welcome to the Artist Development Podcast, where we explore the human experience within the music business. In today's episode, we chat with artist manager and viral marketer Theo Fightmaster. Theo stumbled into the music industry after growing the Instagram page at World of Music from 20,000 to over 200,000 in 18 months. He has since built a network of viral pages and works alongside major and indie labels to help break their new artists. We talk about leadership, creating systems for success, and the current state of viral marketing and where it is headed. I hope you you enjoy. Something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is habits versus motivation. And I know you were a GM of a minor league baseball team. So I'd imagine that you had to wear a lot of different hats and you also managed several people who were also wearing several hats. How do we create a system for the proper habits for that sort of thing so that you set people up for success in an organization like that? If I had a great answer to that question, I feel like I'd be selling seminars or being Tony Robbins, except likable. I mean, actually people like Tony Robbins, I guess. uh, I'm gonna say I don't know. You touched on something that I think is a really important element in all of this and the difference between motivation and discipline or motivation and habits. And one of the things I talked to my, my sons about, I've got, you know, a, a 14 and a 15 year old, actually they're almost 15 and 16 now is motivation is very temporary. It only comes in spurts and it's never there when you need it to really get the consistent desired results you want out of life or out of anything in life. So I understand the importance of discipline and systems. I have not found a foolproof way to execute those either professionally or, or personally. Uh, I do think that, you know, it does start with writing things down on paper, having a vision. And then the most important piece that I've learned really only the last few years of my life is being okay with the failure, being okay when things don't go right or well, or even, you know, they're never going to go perfectly. That's our expectation. But, you know, being okay with things going poorly and not letting that shake you to your core to the point where you're like, I can't do this. I'm a failure. I'm a fraud. So I didn't answer your question, but that's the best I can do. That's the perfect way to kick off a podcast is just completely <laughs> ignore the first question. Also running for office. <laughs> You did touch on something though, which is handling failure. And so it's something that for me, I've looked at failure recently as more of a feedback loop uh, where the only way that you can know if you're on the right path is if you fail, whether it's a small failure or a large failure depends on the circumstance, but you use that failure as a learning moment. How do you handle failure? And, And as a father, which I am as well, how do you teach that? You know, failure's been a huge boogeyman in my life from the days when I was trying to be an athlete, you know, playing sports, even in little league. Um, if I didn't get a hit every game, I was a failure. I might've had two hits, but if I struck out the other two times, it didn't count. And if I ever did anything that wasn't perfect, uh, it was a failure. If I didn't make a team as I got older and got into college and, and kept trying to compete, it was really hard. Now I look back and 
I have to give myself some credit because I kept trying, right? I, I kept missing uh, opportunities that I was going for, but I never kind of gave up. And I don't really know what what that was um, that, that allowed me. I, I think at the time it was passion. I think some of it was, you know, a little bit of youthful uh, ignorance. It's like, oh, just try again, I guess even though the loss was so devastating, it didn't prevent me from trying again, knowing what I was going to possibly suffer. And maybe that's just life and repetition. So as a dad, I, I talk, when I see my kids go through some failure, I kind of like, I secretly sort of pump my fist because I know that that's a huge learning opportunity. I know that's a huge moment. And when I really get excited is when I see them have some resiliency because there's unfortunately so many people in our lives that you look at and the smallest little setback turns into a completely dead end. So yeah, I think you know, failure, I, I had a, a coach who, who referred to losing seasons as like dog years. You, you know, a winning season, it's great and it's fun and everyone has a really fun time, but those losing seasons where things just nothing goes right. That's like seven, that's like a seven year season. They just go on forever and ever and ever like a dog year, but you have so much more opportunity to learn in those situations. The other thing that I've learned as I've gotten older is I don't know if winning actually feels that good. I think winning is a sense of relief that you didn't lose more than a feeling of bliss or uh great accomplishment. So knowing that, how do you manage your emotions? For me, it, for me, it sort of came naturally. And, and I don't know how much of my own personal perspective is, is really all that important. But I, I do think I was sort of, to a degree, my, my kind of insecurities and anxieties and fear of failure sort of created the predilection that I'm going to fail. So it wasn't like, a huge disruption in, in my psyche to, to struggle. I didn't like it. I didn't want to, I wanted to win, but it wasn't like I, I wasn't ever that kid who had to change teams and root for the team that just won the NBA finals or the Super Bowl. And I credit a ton of that to my parents for giving me at least enough consistency and safety and nurturing in my home that I was at least confident enough to take some losses. It is hard, but I think at the same time, when you're engaged in something and you're doing it because you want to be there, and that's one thing that I've always been really fortunate that I've got a, a wife who has a consistent job. She's a very steady, even keel person. And that's allowed me a little bit more flexibility than other people to take some chances and go work for a startup minor league baseball team or you know, turn into a reporter at the age of 29 to try completely different fields in life when you're supposed to have already picked a career and picked a lane and just stay in it. So, you know, just people around me have been overwhelmingly consistent and supportive. And that's, and that certainly has been a huge part of why I've been able to deal with ups and downs, I think, because there's been consistency around me. Shifting from your own personal 
uh, journey through failures and wins and losses and successes. As the GM, you also had to evaluate players, coaches, staff members, and their ability. What sorts of questions do you ask when you're evaluating talent? I think the the number one thing and one of the great corollaries between music and sports is that they are really true meritocracies. And that word kind of gets abused, I think, in our society. But in the in the world of professional sports, certainly performance speaks louder than anything. And if somebody is performing better than somebody else, they're going to get more of an opportunity and the same is true in our industry now in the music world where if you keep writing hits or if you keep uh, growing an audience if you keep finding successful ways to market people or brands or artists you know you're going to continue to to ascend to to where you belong that doesn't totally account for you know our 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 backgrounds in life, right? We all have different starting blocks. We all have some built-in advantages. You know, Billie Eilish is like a great example of somebody who she made her own music in her bedroom with her brother, but how many families are able to build a studio for even a few thousand dollars in their kid's bedroom? As I'm not picking on Billie, it's just professional athletes are, are the same thing. There is a lot of privilege in the world of professional sports because parents have to sacrifice a ton to get these kids these opportunities to be on travel ball teams. So to get to practice every day, to get to games every day, it's not something that if you don't have a support system around you, you're going to have a, a real fair shot at, but once you're there, once you're on the field, once you're in the studio, things are on a much more level playing ground. And I think I do think in my heart politics, play a, a much smaller role once uh, people are are there performing. There's a saying in the startup world, which you and I have both lived very in very close proximity to with Silicon Valley, which is that the best technology does not always win. Do you think that that's true in music as well? Because I know that you said that if you keep working hard, the best performers are going to filter to the top. But there has to be some advantage to having a team around you, like you were saying, um, as well as financial backing and marketing. I think if you were to look at everything over time and if you could project out, I think, yes, resources and teams and that sort of support is is huge you know mike karen is someone that you know you and i follow and, and know well in the industry uh and, and he recently tweeted or shared something on instagram about you know great songs find audiences and i do think that that's true so now it comes down to patience it comes down to if you don't get where you want to be in the first few years are you still working the same way, driving the same way, writing the same songs, promoting yourself as hard and as vigorously as you were on day one when you've taken some losses and you haven't caught that big break yet. Now, that kind of comes down to a lot of other elements in someone's life. Some people don't have five years to give it a shot. Some people have a very small window, uh, and that's certainly arbitrary and and unfair 
if you take some of those, you know, uh, more, you know, vague and, and nuanced elements aside, I, I do still believe that high quality stuff wins out unless you're talking about beta versus VHS specifically, if we want to age the demo here a little bit. You get the reference. <laughs> so, but that, I think that that does go back um, to what we were talking about and how we, how we kicked off this conversation, which is habits versus motivation. Uh, you're not able to sustain motivation for 10 years straight. However, if you create a system of habits that sets you up for a better chance of success within the industry and success is, is subjective. How I'm defining it is if you're making a living doing what you love, which is creating music, sharing music, playing music out live for people, or if you're just a producer, whatever that looks like, then you're successful and you're, you're truly earning a living doing what you love. Other people define success as a completely different metric. Sometimes an insane metric. Yeah. And there's, and I'm not saying that music is a zero sum game, but when you start playing in that realm, it, it's much more a zero sum game. Well, I mean, I, I do think you're right. And I think I'm wrong a lot of the time. So if we want to disagree on this, like, we'll just, let's just disagree, Nick, just, just say it. Um, no, I think, <laughs> I think you're right to, to a degree that, you know, it, it is a zero sum game. And you, if you don't have those habits, you don't have that system, uh, those systems in place, you know, you're, you're probably going to peter out sooner than, than you'd like. Uh, I also think having a really honest calibration of what success looks like to an individual is important. You know, if, if you and I were to talk to an artist and their goal is to be post Malone level success in the next year, We'd be like, hey, I love this confidence. I love this ambition. That sounds like an insane thing to say, but then I'm not going to judge. I'm going to look at the process that they're that they're living. Are they working? Are they grinding? Are they actually producing content? Are they sharing it? And if there's a process that matches that insane aspiration, then then why not? You know the. There, there's so much, uh, so many dreams die on like the road to mediocrity. You know, it's like there's so many ideas that we're uh, living on a daily basis that are really insane, but they're like now practical things. Like we're talking to each other across the country uh, over video and sound like in real time. But that's, those, you know, that's an insane idea. And here we are, it's like, it's mundane now to be talking on a Zoom call. I'm chasing, the, we're going a long way for this ham sandwich here, but I think that, uh, I think it's all about your process and doesn't match your, your aspiration. Like I want to win the lottery. You know, that's my goal. <laughs> I want to win the Powerball. Well, are you buying tickets? Eh, sometimes you got to do it consistently. One thing that I have I have always admired about you is that you have soft hands when delivering news to creative types. And it's something that I'm definitely on the harsher end of delivering feedback. How do you do that? You know, that's uh, an interesting thing to be complimented on because I actually feel the same about you and your ability to be a little bit, 
more curt. To, to me, it is, uh, I am an insanely sensitive person. I have too much empathy. I give people probably too much credit or assumed credit. And I don't want to break people the way I feel like I might be broken in a similar situation. You know, and the other thing that I do think helped sort of hone the language and maybe hone the conversations was there, there's two things that, that have really helped me in my life. One was being a reporter, being a reporter, you, you have to build rapport very quickly when you're talking to someone and you're trying to get quotes, you're trying to get information. And so that helped me conversationally. Uh, and I've taken that skill professionally everywhere else I've gone, including sales. The other thing that helped me a lot with delivering bad news was being a, a general manager. And I think coaches have the same thing when you make cuts, you know, and it's one thing in high school to, to tell a kid they didn't make a team. It's a little bit tougher to tell a grown man who was one of the best players on his college team that he's not a baseball player anymore. The first few seasons, I think of the first two seasons I was a general manager when we make cuts during spring training. I, I mean, I would, there'd be multiple days where I would tell a kid that he wasn't a ball player anymore. And I'd go into my office and I'd cry. <laughs> I don't know how he <laughs> took it, but I didn't take it very well. So it, that's just a, honestly, I would, I would consider that you compliment me. I would consider it almost, you know, a, a programming error <laughs> for being too sensitive. What values should a leader have? Selflessness. I think uh, I've heard it put best is if you're going to be a leader you're going to, you need to be okay with eating last and not all the time. You know, I take that very figuratively, not literally, <laughs> though I am, I'm on a, a bit of a cleanse right now, but uh, yeah, you need to be okay with taking care of your team first and, and you work for them and they've got to be happy and motivated. Otherwise they're not going to work for you. The other part of that, element uh, of selflessness is is your own work ethic and your own level of you know but I, I think it's really hard to have a leader who says these are jobs that I won't do and so when you, you have a, a boss or somebody who's playing that card like I don't do that they lose credibility because that boss is inevitably asking somebody in an organization to do that work that they are too good for so you know there's there's no s small jobs just uh, small people is that how it goes nick i'm not sure i'm six five so <laughs> i've never i've Everyone's never really small. had that issue i i do remember and and it's funny because something that popped up um today actually was i think the the idea that in order to have power or um, strength or leadership position, you have to be prepared. It's, it's almost like the, the Spider-Man uh, with great power comes great responsibility. I was reflecting back and it, and it was when I was writing in my journal and I became a sales manager before I turned 22 and I failed horribly because I wasn't prepared to manage people. I was a rock star when it came to sales, but I was horrible with the leadership portion of it. And then I think back and I'm like, well, now I could very, very well do that, that job, but that's, 
13 years, that's almost 13 years difference. What were they thinking giving me the keys at the time? But I kept saying I wanted the keys and then going through that, again, going through failure and that learning experience of that actually, it was not the time, it was not my time. I was not prepared for that. Uh, The mentors that I had did not prepare me for the level of empathy, I think is probably the best way to put it that I would need to lead people because I was leading like a salesperson, not like a sales manager. Yeah. I think I I was, I was intrigued in what you're touching on because I think that there's a lot to unpack there to use an overused podcast phrase, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, leadership is, is really difficult. It's really hard. And I also honestly think without, you know, you're, you're an exceptional human being, right? Like you've found a way to flourish, uh, to be resilient. You're very smart. You, you're, you're a strong, soft and hard skill set. And I think with people like that, it's actually harder to be a manager because you make some assumptions that everyone else has similar skills, has similar drive, has similar desire. And one of the things that you find as you work more and more is that there's a lot of people that are just kind of there, you know, and, and they show up and they're nice and they, they want to do their job, but they don't, they don't go home and think about it. And I've never had that luxury. Uh, I've never been able to do that. Well, even when I was working through college as a fishmonger at Whole Foods, you know, it, it, it all mattered way too much to me. And I, I always kind of envied the guys that could just like clock out and go drink some beers. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I'd literally go home and have dreams about setting the fish case the next morning. And I could never, <laughs> I was always at work. Um, and again, not, not a character trait I, I enjoy, but I do think it's uh, made me a bit more productive and a little bit more successful. I appreciate the kind words. And it's very interesting that you say that because it's something that I've realized over the last few years or so that not everyone's all in and, and going back to, to management is that that was, that was the case where it was like, we gotta, we gotta get this done and we're here to all be sales rock stars. And then realizing that not everybody operated like that. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Shifting gears you run a very successful viral music page called World of Music. You also have a handful of others for sake of simplicity. I'm just going to refer to World of Music. How did you even get into managing social media and viral pages? Yeah, like most things in my life that I got into, mostly by accident. Uh, Usually what happens is I... I meet somebody, I'm intrigued in what they're doing or how they're living. I talk to them and then they say, hey, here's this opportunity, give it a try. And I'm like, okay, that sounds neat. I'll try that. So uh, I was actually calling a mutual friend of ours, Brett Martin, whose daughter Avonlea is a a recording artist and, and super talented. I really was not thinking about music or the music industry in any, there wasn't an iota of my intention was to go talk to Brett about how to crack into the music industry. Brett and his family are real estate people. They're, you know, they, they own apartments and they're developers. And my hope was that uh, 
Brett, who knows me a little bit and likes me a little bit, would be like, oh, yeah, get your real estate license and uh, come work for us and you'll make a nice living. And I talked to him. We go to this vegan restaurant in Santa Rosa. He said, I, I was, if I was trying to make money, I'd get into social media. And I'm like, uh, I'm on social media. I'm really good at Facebook. You know, people like my comments. I'm, I'm funny. I'm witty. I make jokes. I'm topical. And he started telling me how he was buying and flipping pages and you know he'd buy this page for 1500 bucks and get it really cooking hot and then sell it for uh, a nice profit Um, and he had this one page that he had been running that he bought from this russian kid like in 2014 called world of music and it just he had several people try it he tried it just nothing he could do got any engagement got any follower growth it was just really stagnant really stale and so honestly like i was i had so the just to kind of contextualize this this was about a year after i had uh resigned from my role as a general manager of my league baseball team the sonoma stompers for any baseball fans out there you can google them they're kind of a cool team and a cool story so and my wife was pregnant and uh, I was like, I got to figure something out here. So anyway, I took a chance. I was, I was in a position where I, I could certainly spend a few minutes a day on Instagram or a few more minutes a day. And uh, we had this idea that we were just going to kind of copy and mimic, literally mimic some of these more successful pages, you know, use the same hashtags, put up the same posts. It's by no means rocket science. And then literally every single day for like, four or five months, I posted stuff. And I don't think it was the exact same time of day. Uh, I don't think it was any sort of magic other than the consistency. And that's what we, this kind of is a theme of our conversation is like, if you do something well enough for long enough, oftentimes it's going to turn into something more than it was prior. It might not blow up and you might not be able to retire off of it, but you're going to have more than you started with and you're going to learn a ton along the way. So, you know, I was kind of living in Instagram and kind of, you know, you're kind of living and breathing the algorithm. You're noticing trends, you're noticing what's working, what doesn't work. And you just kind of very quickly, it's such an immersive experience. You very quickly build up a lot of comfort and kind of expertise to a degree. So started adding a few pages. One thing led to another. A few record labels started reaching out because they liked the page and, and the, the potential of it, the reach of these pages. So I started doing that. And then actually that was my, my entree into the, the music industry or as, as the tagline of World of Music is, you know, that was my, my first job as a music industry nobody. <laughs> but you took the page from 20,000 to over 200,000 in a relatively short period of time. I know that you said that you were reposting things that were successful and, and mimicking other pages, but at a certain point, there had to have been something that changed you versus anyone else who could have done that. And, and, I believe down to my core that you're not sharing everything uh, that you did because I've, I've watched you and you're doing something that, like you said, anyone can follow the recipe, but for some reason you popped out. Why? You know, I, I honestly, if, if that was the case, I 
myself couldn't identify it beyond the consistency. Now, did it happen a little faster for World of Music than it might happen for other pages? Yeah, I, I, I think probably. I think, you know, the there was at one point we had grown like 100,000 followers in, in nine months, which, you know, without a single dollar of, uh, of, of paid, completely organic. There was some very light networking, right? You know, follow for, not even follow for follows. Like I, I try to DM larger pages and I'd, I'd actually, you may, this, this could be it. I, I would, I would give people shout outs without them asking. So like I would see a bigger page that I kind of liked and admired. And I would, when I were to repost them, I would say, Hey, this go follow our friends at, at verse or go follow our friends at hot vocals. And I, I'm not to say that that like was, I, I had no expectation that they were going to reshare me. And I think most of the time they probably didn't, to be honest. But I, I coming from the reporting world, I do think assigning credit as much as possible was kind of important to me that, hey, this isn't mine. I didn't, A, I'm not singing in this video. I didn't edit this video. I didn't even originally post this video. Uh, there's a lot of people who have put this video in front of me. And I'm just like passing it down the line a little bit to, to, to more people. So I, I don't think that's a very technical thing, but I, I do think giving credit is, is important. And that's a, that is a piece of advice that I do give people when they want to grow. It's like social media is, is in so many references and, and so many occasions, it's basically like driving down a highway with everyone's billboard and everyone's billboard is to get your attention onto them and to get your dollars into their pocket. And I think if you just by differentiation, look at it as more of a, Hey, how can I add value to you? You're all of a sudden going to stand out. You're, you're going to just, just look different, feel different. Uh, because you're not, I'm not trying to sell, you know, teeth whitening solutions or Sarah's secret diet. <laughs> you know, it's like people come to this page because they, they scroll, they, they're scrolling, right? They didn't, they don't seek it out. They're scrolling. They want to see content that is enjoyable. Um, and there are some times when I, I don't even rewrite the captions. I just like, you know, repost and leave their other tags in there and you know, there, I, I can't say that it's because like I'm clever or a writer. Sometimes I think I write funny captions and nobody cares. Nobody cares what I'm writing. They just, they want to see the content. Do you think that artists and people trying to go viral or maybe not people trying to go viral, but people trying to make a living with their content, do you think that they should do paid ads? I mean, I'm a big believer in paid advertising. I, I mean, it's it. Uh, so I'm not going to say that it's, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. it. I think if you have good content and you promote that out to a larger audience that's well targeted, um, you're going to have a bigger audience who likes your good content. If you, and I might be getting off base a little bit here, but if you, if you suck before advertising, you're just going to suck even harder after advertising. Just more people will see that you suck. So I wouldn't spend a lot of money on digital ads or social ads 
if your content isn't getting some sort of traction, some sort of engagement prior. And that's the best barometer that you're going to have is how are people organically reacting to my stuff? Are they streaming it multiple times or is there a lot of skip rates on my songs on this playlist? You know, it's, it's content is, is everything. If you have good content, almost uh, there's, there's, there's really no bad strategy after that. So you've posted hundreds, if not thousands of viral videos. What are some of the common elements that people can mimic um, that you can point out for someone who's listening to this podcast? Yeah, look, um, obviously it's, it's a visual medium. So aesthetics are, are incredibly vital. And, and to a certain degree, the other end of the continuum that you see with some success is like, you know, the, the chubby kid or the, the old lady who, who, who's singing or doing something, but is like really funny or charismatic, or maybe has a great singing voice. So, so whatever you can do, I, I'm always, I've always been a big believer in differentiation. So yes, if you look on Instagram, you look at the, 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 the trending accounts, the trending stuff, you go to explore. Um, I'm sure everyone's feed is a little bit different. Right. But you know, I think there's, there's two things that two sort of principles that, that I would suggest anyone trying to create content to follow. One is make content that you yourself are just in love with that you really are proud of and you want to share that means something to you. You have to share it because you're proud of that content. You're not sharing that with the expectation of everyone else loving it. And then the, the second is, is be authentic. So if you are really into health and fitness and you've got, you know, a, a body that translates well to a gym apparel and, and you want to motivate people to, to be more fit or to do different exercises, then do that. But if you're chasing that because you see it working for somebody else and doesn't really click, what are you doing that for? Stop it. Do something you want to do. Stop it, Nick. There, <laughs> there is a slight movement going on on Instagram where people are calling out fake content more and more. But at the same time, when you're calling it out, you're commenting, so you're engaging. And so even one of, one of the worst types of videos and things that you actually share on World of Music that just drives me insane <laughs> is the... I sang for my dad for the first time or I sang for my boyfriend for the first time. And this is I his reaction. Too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know that you're just sharing content that spreads. Yeah. But it yeah. spreads for all the wrong reasons. And part of that is people commenting negatively but you're still getting engagement on your post right. and controversial content is still good content. Yeah. Social media is broken in the sense that it really incentivizes uh, negativity. It really incentivizes snarky uh, retorts and, and quick, uh, quick hitting insults. And I, I, I'll have to go back and look at my feed because I'm not always super thoughtful. Sometimes it's like, oh crap, it's 9.30 at night and I haven't put a post up today. I need to go find one. Sometimes I don't even have the sound on when I'm, when I'm taking these videos. It's like purely that video 
looks like a good video and I don't know what they're saying and I post it. I agree that a lot of these trends are, are super contrived. The acting is really bad. Uh, I don't know the last time I posted one of those because I, I myself have grown really wary of that. I think the last time I posted one, I made a very snarky comment in the caption itself, kind of mocking the, the people who were still doing this, this trend um, or that meme. But I, I think what you, what you are always going to, you're always going to, you know, nothing's ever going to be perfect, right? Like you, there's a little bit of feet in the beast that has to go on where it's like, all right. Um, and I don't think I put a much calculation into it. It's really kind of a, what kind of mood am I in at that moment? And some, uh, there, there was one video that I saw yesterday that I, I won't give it too much credit or too much uh, exposure because I just thought it was so, it was so contrived and poorly executed on so many levels, but it, it probably delivered what they wanted, which was engagement. It was this, you know, alleged uh, adopted siblings who were getting married and the dude's like holding pieces of paper saying that they're actually brother and sister. And it was just trash from like, like five seconds in, you could tell it was completely contrived and inauthentic. And it was the whole intent of this entire experience that they were filming and writing and creating was to get clicks. And I, I just, you know, if that's, if that's what you live for, I, I love you for that. Go for it. Get some clicks. Where Whoa. where do you see? Yeah, cut me off, please. <laughs> <laughs> where do you see the viral marketing efforts moving to in the next six to twelve months? I think you're going to see. Unfortunately, we are in a copycat society. I think there's some, there's that's a, a ingrained into our DNA, right? Like we want to. You got to fit in. Um, it goes back to cavemen days that if you know if you didn't if you didn't fit in you were going to be um, an outcast and your likelihood of survivalhood was was less. So you're going to see the copycats. Um, they're going to keep doing this, and I, I think the way social media is engineered, you're going to see things that are are contrived and, and conceptualized to for trolls essentially like that's that's not going away unfortunately um it's just too there's too much of a reward a quick reward for people to to put chum out in the waters for the trolls i do think that there are still a lot of very thoughtful kind good not who who knows they're kind i think there are very thoughtful people who are gonna kind of get back into creatively sharing what they love and, and you see different, even some of these, these people that are kind of more high level influencers, you see that they have little tricks and tricks sounds a little bit too negative, but they have, they're smart in how they present a, a photo with a caption. They're really smart and, and some, you know, not just the lazy stuff like, oh, you know, let's misspell Justin Bieber's name and get a bunch of corrections as comments and engagement. I think we are going to get to a point where I, let me say this thoughtfulness has never won out at scale, <laughs> but I do think you're going to see more people being more thoughtful. I think you're going to see more people being trying to be more authentic. And I think that's where it feels that's where brands are going. 
feels like brands are trying to do that, whether they're being authentic about being authentic, I don't know. But I think we are going to see some some people trying to be a little bit more authentic and real, whatever that looks like. And, and you're gonna you're gonna see that the trends over the next six to twelve months are gonna be vastly different than they were because we're constantly evolving. Um, new people are getting on these platforms every single day. Our our, our culture is is very much a, a culture of uh, uh, you know s- stealing from the the popular kid or the popular one and, and mimicking it and and then the the creators are still going to be creating and, and putting new stuff out for the the thieves uh, the thieves to steal. So I think that 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 does relate to the music industry as a whole because something that i heard that i've i've really taken to heart is that only you can be the best you and so authenticity is so important for a creative artist in any field but specifically for music because everything after that is just a copy of you and so it's something that that i think is so incredibly important for people starting out to to follow as far as a principle goes. What would one piece of advice be that you would give to a person just starting out in the music business? I'm going to, I'm going to not quite answer your question again, permission. Uh, I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to go back to when I was a general manager of a professional baseball team and I would get a ton of requests for people from people who wanted to be interns and they could work for free and they could do this and they loved baseball and they grew up fans and that's their dream to work in professional baseball. And so when I get them into the interview process, if they made it that far, I would ask them, why do you want to do this? And, and I would want to hear their answer. And then inevitably I would try really hard to talk them out of it. That is my piece of advice. And and I think what I've learned is that the people you can't talk out of it are there for the right reasons. They're there because they do have that passion and that drive and that all the dirty work, all the scuttle, the scut work that you have to do behind the scenes. That isn't what you see when you're on Instagram following, you know, Ariana Grande or, Halsey or any of these, you know, superstars, like all that, all that grind, it's an overused phrase in in our culture right now, but all of that is not going to phase them. It's not a perfect way to weed people out, but I think it weeds out a lot of people when you just try to tell them like, eh, I don't think this is going to be for you. I think that's the perfect piece of advice uh, for anyone. And I think that's the perfect stopping point for this. So Theo, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And it has been very insightful. Nick, I really appreciate you having me on. It was uh, great to have a conversation with you and uh, can't wait for my mom to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Artist Development Podcast. To learn more about the project, visit artist.dev slash podcast.